Hello, hello. I am your host, Dorotia Barna, and you are listening to the Mind Society Speaker Series, where we invite professors, researchers, and graduate students specializing in psychology to share and discuss their unique research questions, most recent studies, along with their fascinating findings. Coming from some of the top universities throughout the world, these experts will share what they've been working on in their labs and illuminate their discoveries so that we can use this information as sources of knowledge to elevate the quality of our lives and the way we engage with and interpret others. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, we are officially launched. Wow, I somehow can't believe it. The Mind Society has been this idea cooking in my mind for almost a year now. And finally, here we are live. We have so many incredible speakers and conversations lined up for you guys throughout this season. This passion project of mine has brought me invaluable lessons and experiences so far. And I hope you, as the listener, also get something out of it. So on that note, let's get started. Our first guest is the first ever female tenured professor of psychology at Harvard. She's been studying mindfulness for over 40 years now. She's authored and co-authored a seemingly infinite amount of articles and has been cited thousands of times. She's written numerous books, most notably Counterclockwise, The Power of Mindful Learning, and Mindfulness. Besides all the research she's conducting in the Langer Lab, she's also a faculty professor where she has taught Harvard College students on occasion. Her other ongoing projects include Mindful Contagion, using mindfulness to increase innovation, improve learning and memory, and decreasing stereotyping. My conversation with Dr. Langer is up next. Hello, Dr. Langer. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Just wanted to jump right into it. So let's talk a little bit about what you know your major area of research is and what you've been working on uh, recently in recent years, and maybe go over the um, most recent books you've written. Let's just kind of tell our, our audience as far as what you've been working on and what your major focus is. Okay. So for over 40 years, I've been studying mindfulness. And this is um, mindfulness without meditation. Mm-hmm. Right? Although I did early work on meditation. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that you don't need to meditate. And it's all based on a very simple assumption that everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. So uncertainty should be the rule rather than the exception. And when you know you don't know, then you naturally tune in. However, schools, papers, lectures um, tend to give us information as absolute fact. Mm -hmm. And there really aren't any absolute facts independent of context because everything is changing. So Mm -hmm. I tell the story frequently. I was at this horse event and this man asked me if I could watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Well, I'm Yale Harvard all the way through. I know this is ridiculous. Horses don't eat meat. He brought back the hot dog and the horse ate it. And at that moment, I knew everything I thought I knew could be wrong. uh, How many horses were tested? How hungry were they? How much grain was mixed with how much meat? So on and so forth. And so then to realize that science only gives us probabilities that say, if we were to do the exact same study, 
again, which we could never do exactly the same, we're likely to get these results. Those results are then put out there for the world to consume as absolute fact. Mm -hmm. So people are constantly trying to hold things still when in fact there's more control um, success that one becomes, uh, becomes available to us when we let it naturally vary. It's going to vary anyway. You can hold a stool in your head if you want. Right. At any rate, so this process of active noticing um, makes you aware. When you notice new things about things you thought you knew, you realize, gee, you didn't really know it. I mean, if I were asked you, how much is one in one, Dorothy? Two. Two. But if you add one cloud to one cloud, one plus one is one. So even the things we think we know best uh, need to um, we need to look at more mindfully. All right, so in study after study, we have people notice new things and the effects, um, it affects everything that we do. So um, our health, our success, our relationships, and uh, some of the newest work, a lot of the work has been about health. And one of the things, you know, so we did lots of studies that are based on this idea of mind-body unity. You put mind and body back together, then wherever you're putting the mind, you're necessarily putting the body. So we put the mind in all sorts of strange places and measure the body. The first of these uh, was the counterclockwise study where we took old men to a retreat. We retrofitted to 20 years earlier and had them live as if the, uh, the past were the present. And as a result, their hearing improved, their vision improved, their strength, their memory, and they looked younger. Now, these were men in their 80s. So I don't know, I've never heard of anybody having their vision and hearing improve without medical intervention. So it was all very exciting. Oh, we have, yeah, so we have lots of studies like this. So then the question is, well, um, it's nice that I can fool you into um, being better, being healthier, as with placebos, but how do we get people to be able to do this for themselves? So we, we've done lots of research on what we call attention to symptom variability. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have a problem, let's say you have chronic pain, um, when you're in pain, you notice. When you're not in pain, you tend not to notice. You're just out and about, and then the pain comes again. So there's a way you think you're always in pain. But nobody is always anything, and certainly not to the same degree. So what we do is we call people periodically, and then I'll tell you how you can do this for yourself. We call people periodically, and in the important group, we simply ask them, how do you feel? And is it better or worse than the last time we spoke? And why? All right, so let's say this is true for stress. We've done these with so many disorders, um, multiple sclerosis, um, ALS, chronic pain. Um, we're doing it now with Parkinson's um, and stroke. Uh, we've done it with anxiety. Um, I don't remember the list I've given you, but it goes on and on. It should be true for virtually everything. Right. And so um, uh, interestingly that when people have some symptom, as I said, they notice when they have it. The key to what I'm going to tell you is to notice when you don't have it, mm. when you're fine. Right, so that's why we call people to see when they're better. So let's say stress. Let's say you think you're stressed all the time. And again, nobody is anything all the time. So right. now I call you, are you more or less stressed than before? And we go through this at random times over a week or two. And then you realize, gee, when you're talking to Ellen Langer, you're stressed. When you're not talking to her, you're not stressed. Well, then the cure is very simple. Don't talk to me. 
Right. <laughs> or conversations with me on uh, without stress. Right. And so this works across all sorts of diseases. Now, um, everybody, virtually everybody seems to have a smartphone. You can easily set your smartphone to ring um, and, you know, and then ask yourself the three questions. Is it better or worse than before? At where you just two questions. Like, is it better or worse than the last time? And why? Mm-hmm. And uh, for some, you know, as with stress, it's probably easier than with some of these other diseases, but it seems to work with everything. Mm-hmm. And then the next time your phone rings, you now set it for some other time. So choose random times, two hours later, 45 minutes, you know, periodically mm-hmm. throughout the day. And you come to see that um, things vary. So you immediately feel better because you thought you always had this, whatever the it is. And now you see sometimes you don't have it. And, um, and then by asking why now and not before, three things happen. The first is that that actually is mindful. And I have 40 years of research saying just being mindful, the neurons are firing, and that seems to be good for your health. Second, <clears throat> that um, by asking yourself uh, why is it better or worse than before, um, you're more likely to, to solve a problem if you ask the question than if you just assume that it's insoluble. So two things, we'll leave it mm-hmm. at that. So that's a, a very exciting um, piece of research. We're doing it with you know, the students in the lab. Somebody knows somebody who has a heart condition. Okay, so then we do it with a heart condition. Somebody has somebody, knows somebody has irritable bowel, migraines, it doesn't matter. It should be true for everything. Wow. Um, the another thing that we're doing is about how one's mindfulness is actually you wear it. There's a way, you know, we have uh, notions like the lights on, but nobody's home. You know, that sort of we know when someone's not there. Right. And 40 years of research tells me that most of us aren't there almost all the time. <laughs> not surprising. And, right. And so when people are there. People see people as attractive, authentic, charismatic. And we have lots of data on that. Right. So one of the, the I'd like to look at uh, things that seem to be problems and see, well, how is that problem possibly an asset? Um, now, so take autism. Now, um, if we see people who are autistic as being super sensitive to other people's mindfulness or mindlessness. And if most people are mindless, then somebody who is autistic is going to pick up those signals and respond in a way that is more extreme, let's say, than somebody who's not autistic. So we have people being mindful or mindless, interacting with autistic kids. And when the uh, teacher, the experimenter is mindful, the child behaves like a normal child. Another version of this is about alcohol. Well, lots of people who drink a lot drink because they need to dull the world because they're just getting too much information. You know, I I myself have very strong crap detectors, you know, so parties are hard for me. I mean, I enjoy it, but, you know, I'm picking up everybody's discomfort and you mix that with my rescue fantasies. It's not fun. All right. So, um, that into an experiment. So we say that people who do a lot of drinking are picking up these interpersonal cues. And, um, and they uh, oftentimes, they found a solution that works, alcohol. Now, you know, we take people apart who drink a lot. But if I asked you in the abstract, you have a problem, and you do X, and it solves the problem. Should you do X? 
And everybody's going to say yes, you know, yeah. <laughs> that it's a sensible solution. It just, there are better solutions out there, but it's still not irrational. All right. right. So um, what to, to see if any of this is true, we have people come in for a wine tasting and mm-hmm. we make sure they're all heavy drinkers. And mm-hmm. the experimenter is mindful or mindless. And they have all this wine in front of them that they have to taste and compare and do whatever. And the question is, um, when the experimenter is mindless, do they drink more? Very simple. All right. We have uh, studies where we've had people go to AA meetings. So here we know there are people who are heavy drinkers. And the Mm -hmm. experimenter is mindful or mindless and um, interacts with them after the meeting. And now we don't know if they're drinking or not. You know, I mean, they're supposedly not drinking because they're going to AA. And right. um, uh, we then um, ask them if they'll be in another study. We give them lots of questions to, to see whether the presence of the experimenters, mindfulness or mindlessness, affects them. And it does. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that it does much more so than for people who are not heavy drinkers. Wow. All right. So we have yeah. we have studies like that. And, and one of my general um, oh, styles, I guess, for lack of a better word, is to find the good in whatever thing people see as a problem. I have this general notion that behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective or else the actor wouldn't do it. So, right. for example, I mean, just to make that clear to you, it's not clear to you that you may see me as gullible from my perspective, I'm trusting. I may see you as inconsistent from your perspective, you're flexible. You may see me as impulsive from my, and so on. And so once we recognize that other people's behavior makes sense, then we tend not to be evaluative. And then obviously relationship improve. Hmm. Um, we have a couple of studies that I'll tell you about just for fun, Mm -hmm. but these are really weird. And I don't know if um, I'm gonna end up publishing them. And if I do, I'll warn my students, they shouldn't publish them with me because they're too young. (laughs) Um, That this one is a very, a very simple one. Um, So um, I did this, I don't know if you know the famous gorilla study that Simon and Chabriz did, where people are watching a basketball game Mm -hmm. and in the middle of the game, somebody dressed in a gorilla suit comes on the mm-hmm, court and yeah. people don't see it. Well, that, that one was uh, um, 20 years before that. I did a study that was similar, not nearly as dramatic or exciting, but still with the same basic idea. Mm-hmm. We gave people a card, an index card to read. And the index card said, Mary had a, a little lamb. Mm-hmm. Or it said, I love Paris and though this time. Very simple. And we asked people to read it. And everybody read, Mary had a little lamb. I left Paris and Lisbon. And I said, I'll pay you for accuracy. Okay. Mary had a little lamb. How many words are there? on <laughs> No matter how we, they just didn't say the double word. Right. All right. So now um, that, that seems to be a nice little measure of mindfulness because we gave it to people who just finished meditating and they all saw the double word. Hmm. Okay. So now what we're doing in, in this strange study, and I don't know if we'll continue all of these or not, but mm-hmm. we've replicated it. Um, oh, so you're, you're the research participant and you're sitting down and I'm next to you. Mm-hmm. We're not interacting at all, but I'm mindful or mindless. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and now we give you, I am mindful or mindless. You're just sitting there. We give you the index card. When I'm mindful, you see the double letter. 
So there's some way our mindfulness is contagious. It's, it's in the air. Now, we did a study a long time ago. Um, and, you know, when I do some of these studies, most of them are not funded. And so uh, some of them never get to be to come to fruition or whatever. This one we completed, but I didn't have the staff any longer of finances to replicate it. So I never published it. Uh, but we're doing something similar to it, which is we had um, there's a room. The room is empty. We bring meditators there. They meditate for 20 minutes. They leave the room without knowing that there was anybody there and a group of subjects come in. Mm -hmm. We give them cognitive tests versus the group of subjects come into a room that was not previously inhabited by meditators. Those in the room where the meditators were Mm -hmm. uh, outperform the other group. There's something in the air. So now we're doing it in a prison, but not with meditators. We're doing it with mindfulness in the way I study it, which is just this act of noticing. Yeah, there's something in the air. I don't know. I had a Chinese collaborator who ran it in China, and they were interested in terahertz waves. Well, you know, I had to write a little about this. And so I did what you Mm -hmm. would do. I Googled terahertz waves. I know nothing else about terahertz waves. All I know is that according to them, when I am mindful, your terahertz wave increases. Now, I think that if this is real, it's not going to be for quite some time that it will be out there and appreciated and so on. Um, But we found it, you know, it's not entirely dissimilar from the alcohol and the autism study or the study where you see the double word. And, and so on. I mean, the right. terahertz waves may be some way of explaining it. I don't know. So, so my lab does a continuation of lots of the things we've done before, but taking it to a new level, or we have some of these very strange things that we do just for fun. Um, I have, mm-hmm. my, I'm very fortunate. I have many faculty in my lab. So I have a physics professor at Harvard uh, with whom we're doing a big data study. And that seems to have worked where um, uh, he's now found in, I think it's just photos, but if not, it's very quick video clips where, uh, you don't hear the person and the machine can, uh, uh, figure out whether they're mindful or not. Mm. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. And then lots of my newest work that, you know, so many things, and there's not time to tell you that for, um, I started to get very interested in transforming middle schools. Oh, interesting. Which I remember for me was a waste of time, more or less. <laughs> and um, one thing I noticed, and maybe I'll stop stop with this, um, but so we're going to make middle schools meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have uh, grandkids that are six years old in this little story. So the other day, uh, they're at the hot tub, and I asked them, do they want to take the goojers out of the hot tub? Now, the fact that this is a stupid word is actually useful for what I'm going to tell you. So they get all excited, and they take the debris the Gujars, out of the hot tub. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, next week, they come back and they say, Grandma L, can we take the Gujars out of the hot tub? Now, the reason that that's meaningful is you can be sure they didn't spend the week going Gujar, Gujar, Gujar. Right. And <laughs> it occurred to me then, and the reason that the word Gujar is important, as silly as it is, is it's not related to anything else. Right. So there's no other way to explain them remembering it, except that it was meaningful to them. And it was then that I realized that for all of us, I'd say over 95% of what we know, we never memorized. 
Mm. Yet in schools, this is what we ask people to do. And I think it's a mistake. Another thing that I taught them is this cute little song. I'm not going to sing it for you. I can't carry a tune, but I'll say it. It goes to the Sarah Lee commercial sound uh, music. Mm -hmm. Everybody doesn't know something, but everybody knows something else. And schools are designed to show you what you don't know. Mm. So we have winners and losers, um, and that carries them through their whole lives. And I think that uh, that needs to change. And that all of these losers know something that you don't know, that I don't know, mm. that is useful in at least some context. Mm. So that that's something I'm excited about. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I'm interested, as most people, in anything interesting. I find most things interesting. So if you joined my lab and you said, uh, am I interested in, um, oh, I don't know, doing podcasts, I say, sure. And then we design some study about podcasts. Mm-hmm. I have somebody who's a professional athlete and in charge of professional athletes in the lab now. Oh. And so I'm doing research on sports. And there are two things in sports that are outrageous and mindless. One is that um, people are taught to learn the basics so well that they become second nature. That means that uh, they can do it mindlessly. Mindlessness is never an advantage. Now, so when I used to lecture on this, I would look in the audience for somebody who's very big. I'm 5'3", and I'd find some guy who's, let's say, 6'5", and just standing next to him, we look funny. Mm. And I'd ask him to put his hand up, and I'd put my hand next to his hand, and you'd see his hand is four inches larger than mine. (laughs) And then I'd just ask the question, does it make sense for us to do anything physical the same way? Hold a tennis racket, a golf club, and so on in the world, a baseball bat. And so the moral of that story is the more different you are from the person who created the game, the more important it is for you not to mindlessly lock yourself in. So when you say the basics, there aren't these the basics. Who decided what the basics are? Right. So that's number one is to you do it your own way. And we have research where people are taught in this more conditional way rather than this is the way, this could be the way. The other is practice. People think you should practice until, again, you can do it so that you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. The best way to practice is um, to practice attending to each way or some way it's different from the last time. So you get a deeper and deeper appreciation of uncertainty. So my game is tennis, that the best way to practice with tennis, I think there's a million dollar idea if somebody wants it, is to have tennis balls that have a little weight inside of it to make the bounce unpredictable. And so since you can't predict and you know you can't predict where the ball is going to be, you stay tuned in. So the bottom line to all of it is that um, all that we know is um, as absolute is an illusion, that mindfulness is um, uh, is a way to recognize the implicit uncertainty Mm -hmm. by noticing new things about the things you thought you knew. Um, this is true for everything. Mm. And so I believe, I'm going to make a very big statement, which is probably a good time for us to end. I believe that virtually all of our problems, whether personal, interpersonal, professional, or global, are the direct or indirect consequence of our mindlessness. Mm. And to end on, on a positive note, what that means is that they're probably mindful solutions to all of them. Wow, that's fascinating. I really love that. 
I mean, all of that was just actually, no pun intended, mind blowing. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you your opinion. Um, as far as there's this term that's kind of being thrown around, and I wanted to get your uh, just feedback on it, self-awareness. Would you consider that maybe distinct from mindfulness or perhaps synonymous? Um, it seems like it's a really trendy word right now, just being self-aware. Yeah, I think that one can be mindlessly self-aware. You know, if you think that yourself is stationary and you're going to look at mm -hmm. yourself in uh, uh, specific ways that you've outlined and you don't vary any of that, it seems quite mindless. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are lots of terms that, that seem similar to mindfulness as I study it. Um, attention, you know, now, but what we mean by attention, so we did some research uh, many, many years ago with people who had attention deficit disorders. And you give them a you know, set of stimuli and you ask them to focus, pay attention on one group. Other groups would say, notice one, three, five new things about it and so on. It's many different groups. And what happens is that things vary so that if you hold it still as if you're looking at something through a camera, um, you're doing so mindlessly. And whether it was the elderly, people who had attention deficit problems, even Harvard students, by teaching them to vary what they're attending to, improved attention across the board. Hmm. So attention, in some sense, is necessary, but not sufficient to mindfulness. Then curiosity, well, that's something people talk about. Isn't that the same thing? Well, no, not really, because when you're curious about something, implicit in that typically is that there's a way to find out what it is, as if it's stationary, right? And so mm -hmm. while you're trying to find that, you're probably being mindful, but when you find out, then the game is over. And the game of being mindful is never over because everything is ever changing. Another one that seems similar is vigilance. And the way I describe this is, you know, so let's say I'm on horseback and I tell myself I want to be careful uh, not to of the branches. So I'm vigilant of the branches as I'm racing on horseback through the woods. And I don't notice the boulder on the ground and the horse trips over it and I fall off and get hurt. All right. right. So vigilance is when you have a specific stimulus in mind that you're uh, mindlessly focused on. Mindfulness, mm -hmm. you can see in some ways as a soft vigilance. You're not looking for anything in particular because you don't know what's there, but mm -hmm. you know, but your mind is open. That's really, really interesting. And thanks for kind of elaborating on that. My last question for you is just to kind of get a, your take on the difference uh, between, I guess, culturally speaking, uh, the East and the West when it comes to mindfulness. A lot of times when we think of mindfulness, we kind of think, okay, well, maybe this comes from you know other cultures sure. and it was sure. brought into the United States. Yeah. Or to, and, and so well, I've, I've, yeah, I've been studying um, mindfulness without meditation since the seven, since the seventies, you know, very early seventies. And, um, uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, took the meditation model. Um, and uh, I think that when you say the word mindful, it's interesting to me, when you say the word mindful, so many people think of meditation. Um, and when you say the word mindless, people think of my work. Uh, they don't <laughs> so um, I think I should you know, switch it around yeah. uh, to get rid of the confusion. But meditation is not mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Meditation is a practice you go through to result in post-meditative mindfulness. So mindfulness, as we study, it is immediate. 
And, um, you know, so there are people who, for whom 20 minutes twice a day and the whole Eastern notion is too woo-woo and they just, you know, wouldn't do it. They should be, everybody should be doing mindfulness as I, as I uh, suggest. Um, but mindfulness meditation and mindfulness as we study it are not mutually exclusive. But then there are also people who feel their problems are so big that my simple solutions just seem moronic. And so for them, they should meditate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you know, so yes, um, uh, maybe I should have chosen a different word. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I think that, um, yeah. And, and if you look, I, one of my students was going to do this and it would be ego gratifying, but I'm not sure really important. But if you, this was the supposition that they were suggesting in lab, if you look historically, so we go since the 70s, that the people studying meditation who started with the 20 minutes twice a day, which goes back, you know, uh, is, you know quite a way to Buddha mm-hmm. and what have you. Um, and you look at what they're saying, it gets closer, you know, so 20 minutes twice a day, oh, it doesn't have to be twice a day, once a day, oh, it doesn't have to be 20 minutes, 10 minutes, and, you know, and so on. And uh, they're getting very close. Uh, but there are real differences that, you know, that um, if uh, supposedly when you meditate, you become more compassionate. I mean, I don't see how that follows, um, except that if you believe that if I do this thing, I'll become more compassionate and it, it's effortful to do this thing. So then a cognitive dissonance sort of explanation right. would become more compassionate. For us, um, being mindful means you understand behavior from multiple perspectives. And so um, I, you know, I see your behavior, as I said before, you, um, you're impulsive. I don't have to uh, take you apart or then say, oh, well, I'll love you anyway, even though you're impulsive, because I know that that's spontaneous from your perspective right. and so on. And I likened it to the old video games, which I don't know if they still exist or not, but there used to be, I, I guess, um, Pac-Man. I think that came from Japan, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you know the game Pac-Man yep. where you have this, you know, lots of things, and the little thing goes across the screen eating, and it's all very orderly, the way right. the Japanese tend to be. And then at the same time, you had the American video games where there's just all this chaos and a person you know, has to deal with the chaos. And in some sense, the orderly is more like the um, meditation and the chaos, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really feel chaotic and it's a game, um, you know, so uh, it's no less effective on, on right. that dimension. But where you see this has so many different meanings that you just can't be sure mm. of what it means. And that actually ends up quite freeing. Interesting. You know, that all of stress, and we do a lot of work on stress also, relies on two things, a prediction that something is going to happen and that when it happens, it's going to be awful. And that uh, for us, if you just ask yourself for three reasons why it might not happen, and then you see, oh, yeah, you're immediately less stressed. And if it happens, how might that actually be a good thing? Mm. And so by mixing everything up and recognizing there are multiple ways of seeing everything and um, it, it becomes exciting and an adventure mm. and uh, it makes everything new. So and, and you, you end up without stress. That's awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Langer. I really appreciate your time and being on the show. And thanks so much and keep up the amazing work that you're doing. I can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Stay well. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ellen Langer. Tune in next week for our second guest, Dr. David Pizarro, where we'll be discussing human morality. If these types of conversations interest you, hit subscribe below. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay curious.